0: I tried multiple things you can either you know wait be patient and you or you can start farther back there's a lot of different things you can try usually in serve receive i'm already taking my step before they, the setters contacting the ball my first like say my fourth step my mm-hmm. if i do a four step approach my first step off of uh trans my cue would be more after I, i see the set before i make that first step so as far as timing that would be a little bit of a change to give myself more time and that step is a almost like a skate where i'm like shifting across the top of the sand like or like if you think of like a an animal prowling i'm not like just sprinting in it's like this really like slow push off like you know i'm prowling in not like a commitment step
1: is mark burrick and today we have a really cool treat uh billy allen is going to be with us billy allen is a long time avp and fivb pro he has contributed socially and in terms of the knowledge base and in terms of the entertainment value of the game, attributed from things back in the day like Danny Kinda was a, fan, <laughs> a character where if you don't know or haven't seen the kind of videos, I recommend checking it out if you need a good volleyball laugh at DannyKinda.com. Uh, Billy is also an author, he's a husband, he's a father, and in his blood. I know that both of his parents have owned a volleyball club together and he's been playing for a long time and doing it successfully, and to pick his brain and, and see what knowledge we can get from him. He also is one of the co-hosts of another podcast, which if you're listening to a volleyball podcast, it's called Coach Your Brains Out. Uh, it's also the Gold Squared podcast that I listened to religiously for a few years when I was getting started. Super high quality information. Make sure that you go and you check that out. It's in the show notes. It's in the description. So uh, make sure you subscribe to their podcast as well. But uh, welcome and thank for coming. Billy Allen.
0: Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you bringing up. Uh, I think most people don't remember that. So It's
1: sad. When I know that people don't remember it, <laughs> you know, you get to the the new like I don't know new generation or people who videos because it it spread like wildfire as soon as you guys started videos, YouTube influencer kind of stars before it was a thing, before it was popular. Uh, and they were so good and so like perfect inside jokes for volleyball players that you guys crushed it and i i I do miss uh seeing those yeah
0: we were we were too early we could have made money if we done a little later with better cameras
1: <laughs> there was some audio but no I went through your yeah. Instagram profile and I just clicked on a couple videos and my wife started like laughing at me laughing so hard so uh, the highlight of your career I want to I want to go into something kind of interesting that I s- just saw and I don't know if this if you treat it as you're proud of it not satisfied with it but I, I looked at your BVB info profile and the friends that you played were in 2004 and your first Win first championship, first place was in 2016. So going at it and going at it successfully, consistently good finishes, and then 12 years into it, you get your first title. And I think it was the next year, maybe two years later, you got a, another AVP title. Could you talk me like emotionally through how that felt like, as somebody who's been playing almost as long? you know i've got one third it stinks i want an avp title too you know but to, to play that to play for those many years is that an absolute pump up moment or was it kind of a sigh of relief of patting yourself on? and yeah i am one of the world's best volleyball players you know how do, how do you think about it when you look back on
0: it? i think it's twofold like one i wish i would have won earlier for sure but no i'm definitely proud of uh sticking with it i think if you look at my career There was never like a big breakthrough moment. It was just kind of like you said, a steady climb. And I'm definitely proud of the perseverance because there were a lot of players better than me who were all Americans in college who jumped in the beach game and you know suffered losses like we all did and they they gave it up and I I stuck with it and yeah just slowly got better every year I think if you look, look at BBB like it's yeah it's just this like slow climb and then as far as the you know I get closer I got you know a couple of thirds uh, make a final and then uh, I think that moment of winning was I don't think I got to enjoy it too much because we were actually heading to the airport to go to Hamburg Germany for an FIVB and we were so stressed that we weren't going to make it that we went to the airport before the final and dropped checked our bags in and then flew I drove back didn't even warm up like showed up we won a a match in three we had a really good comeback in the third I think we were down eight two or something against uh, the crab brothers and as soon as we won we ran back to the airport so yeah I don't think I was ever had a chance to like I think a week later when I got home I kind of let it sit in and but by that point it was kind of back to work uh, training for the next tournament
1: so it's it's huge you you know that that the USA has some the best some of the best beach volleyball players and and to win and you could at least for that moment You know, even though you're not playing with the full FIVB tournament, but you get that satisfaction of like, you know what, this weekend, maybe I am was the best volleyball player essentially in the world, especially if we're competing in the AV teams Mm -hmm. that are doing that on a consistent level. That's, it's a feeling that I'm envious of that, that I know that like after my highest finish, I forfeited because I didn't have what you had i couldn't get to the airport i had my partner for fivb waiting in china we we won this match oh this was we didn't win the match Uh, stafford forfeited because he had to because we hit him in the eye and goggles came about he detached retina and then i was like okay sucks to win that way but now i'm sitting on my third uh highest highest finish and then i couldn't play in the in the semi-final or i wouldn't play it was a choice that i made because i knew ian had already flown to china i had an agreement with russ march and i was like listen if we make it this far, which neither of us have, I have to go. And he and you know, that was a kind of celebratory, but kind of really sucky moment and time. And then when I got like a fifth, which was another high finish, I had to sprint literally on my bike to go coach a beat class, like for my beginner's class, because that's how that match went. So it's funny when you get a point mm-hmm. where you, you reach some of your highest satisfaction moments and you don't actually have to celebrate. But would you tell other players and maybe coaches or leaders that they should take that time to celebrate? Or is it when you have a new high, say, get back to work immediately?
0: I think with both uh, losses and wins, you should definitely give yourself space to, to sit in it for a little bit like you know even if you have a bad loss it's it's hard just to t- tell a player like oh just get over it move on like I think you need some room to agree and let whatever emotions are coming that are natural like happen take their course and the same with the win I think you know we play so many volleyball tournaments and most of those you don't win you know you're not Phil Dahlhauser or whoever like most of end with a loss so yeah I think you should definitely cherish and celebrate the moments you do do well as long as it doesn't linger too long and stop you from from training because you think you got got it now. I know I enjoyed my second one more because I had a little bit of time to think about it, but also like uh it was Stafford who I played with his first win and I was just like kind of relieved that I didn't blow up for him <laughs> and I was just yeah, happy to celebrate with him and enjoy that for sure. But then like once you get there like then you just want to win more, you know. It's kinda like, uh, you just kind of like you tasted it and you think, "Oh, we can do this." And so, how do we do it again?
1: Reaching the finals like that you could consider that a turning, t- or is there a turning point that you felt or a season that you had or a partner that you had that propelled you to that next Sunday level?
0: No, I think making a semi felt similar to making a final. I mean, a little different, cause it's like, I don't know, you're still on stadium for a semi usually, you're still a huge crowd, still a big moment. So I think at the time when I made my first like a third, I f- it felt similar to, I think my first, I made a final in Manhattan with Brad Keenan. It was like Corona, Corona wide open or Cuervo, I forget what it was called. Oh. So maybe I felt a little bit, a little bit more. for me. It's more of the teams you beat along the way so i think i felt bigger breakthroughs if i beat a top team you know if I beat a phil and rosie or you beat a jake and casey or whoever then it's like oh like i got to be the top guys in our sport so i can compete against anybody and whether that happens with like a fifth or a seventh i think that was one that gave me a more breakthrough of like you know i have the ability to beat anybody if i'm on and i think those were the yeah, the bigger moments where i thought like i could do this than just like having a good fit mm, okay.
1: Your measuring sticks are do you remember early on like year by year which teams were on your target list for this is the guy or this is the team that i want to be this year uh that took you off for me a long time mover you and, and john mayor hayden just wiped the floor with me for a very long time. Can I can I even touch him? And when you press with him and he sides out 10 balls and you literally haven't touched one of them, you're like, man, maybe I just don't belong. They get that win, you're like, okay? Here you go. You'll push this. But do you remember your list of hits?
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I, I think at the time, it was so many guys. The list was so long that it was, <laughs> it, was it was like, oh, just, if I beat anybody, I'll be happy. But I know like for sure, I didn't beat Nick Lucena until last year. And I beat him twice. He was the one guy that, like I would, for whatever, he, I'd beaten Phil a couple of times with different partners, but I hadn't beaten it. And, you know, a couple years before that it was Hayden and, you know, whatever. But like, um, I think he was the last guy that like I hadn't, hadn't beaten. So, you yeah, and that was really recent. So that was the one time, like maybe I, I think Hayden too, maybe four or five years ago, I kept that in my head. Yeah. So maybe, it, maybe it's a defender thing where you're like, Hey, these are guys that are, I'm competing against directly. And it's a little easier to compare how I match up against him than like a, a
1: Phil or a, a Lambo. Do you think that that's a good way for coming up to sort of measure themselves? or should they do all of the and say like, no, play your game, measure yourself by, by just you. You know, it is easy to have a a high finish if a few teams don't show up. So you could sort of pat yourself on the back and beat that one team that I really want to beat. So Mm -hmm. do you think younger players should be almost comparing themselves, I guess, which is like anti the advice that, that we're always given? Like, no, play your own game, measure your own success. I think you can do
0: both. I think you can, I mean, at the end of the day, you are competing against yourself and how you can be your best best self. And like, I'll never be the same as a Todd Rogers or something like that. But at the same time, I think you should anything you can use to motivate you to play better. And we saw on a Jordan doc, like he would use imaginary things to motivate himself against players. So it's less of like, Am I as good as this person? And like, I need to prove myself to be better, you know, it's, it's not that it's just like embracing the competition, because there's so many times where we look at a draw. And we're like, ah, oh, I have to play this. This is a tough draw. I have to play this tough team. But I think if you looked at that as like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get to go head to head with like one of the top defenders right now. That's a way better way to frame it. And so yeah, like hunt big, hunt big game, you know, like go after go after that stuff rather than think you have a bad draw and stuff like that. So I think it's twofold. I think I don't think you like, I think you, could, you can compare as far as detach and say like, oh, what does their game have that I don't? But as far as like facing your worth off of that comparison, then I think that's where you can maybe get into trouble because yeah, everybody's different and you just have to be better today than you were yesterday.
1: So sort of like goals, measuring sticks, but not necessarily a value of, of what you're, you know, you're playing a ball game against. Yeah, I, I think it's a yeah, really that's a good way answer.
0: to put it because I feel like, yeah, you're going to be yourself, but yeah, it, it is a measuring stick as far as, you know, your climb. But again, it is your climb. Like you're not trying to like, you know, totally emulate another player so you have to be yourself and you know there's guys you m- maybe can't beat and that doesn't mean you're a failure because you're, you're still comparing yourself against yourself but yeah i think you should uh look forward to those challenges and whatever you can do to motivate yourself to be fired up to play somebody
1: Did you, along your career when you were consistently getting like next levels, would you attribute that to adding on a certain skill or a certain piece of knowledge or strategy each year or consistent at what you were doing and learning your game better?
0: Yeah. I think if I looked at my physicalness or most of my skill sets when I was, you know, a couple years on to now, it's probably not that drastic. I probably, you know, jumped higher then. So I think it's definitely more decision-making, consistency, uh, trust and belief in yourself. I think, you know, I I was never a guy that came out thinking I was hot stuff and I deserved to be in finals all the time. I think I had to really earn that confidence. And so I think that was a little slower road for me. But then I think maybe skill-wise, I know my first, first portion of my career, I never handset. I was a bump setter and I was pretty risk averse and just afraid of, you know, getting called for the ball. And so as far as the skills, as far and as you're an indoor setter, right? I, yeah. Yeah. So as far as skills, that was the one I, up, yeah, I don't, it wasn't a matter of like bad hand. It was just a matter of, you know, committing to do it um, and being a little more fearless. So that was maybe one upgrade that I made at a certain point in my career that, that really helped boost me. So
1: hand setting may have been that one attribute. And then you said confidence, you know, confidence or trust in yourself and in your game. Is there a way to explain that in a deeper way? How it. Can you give a specific example of what trusting yourself in a game or on a specific play means to you or what that breakthrough was in a micro moment? Yeah,
0: I think I've thought a lot about confidence because I feel like it's something that has plagued me where it's like, I just, I have a little hard on myself. And so it's a little bit of self-doubt, like, oh, do I deserve to be here? You know, am I as good as these players? And I've seen players, at least from the outside that have, you know, loads of confidence that th- think they're awesome and that carries them a certain degree. I think I've settled on basically the idea that there was two kinds of confidence there's confidence in the moment and that's stuff that's basically out of our hands and that's like more of a feeling like if I just got blocked all of a sudden my confidence level goes down a little bit or if I make a great play my confidence level (laughs) goes up and it's that's a little bit more of just like a feeling that comes and goes and then I think there's the confidence that you earn by your preparation and by your experience and what you've done and I can go into a match saying hey like I've competed at this level before I've put in a lot of work to get here and that confidence is kind of a little more lasting and can be like hey I have the right to compete here and like compete with this team and then the fast confidence that comes and goes with you know play by play i just gotta know that it's out of my hands and i guess just choose courage over confidence as in like oh even if i feel no confidence in that moment because i've made a couple of errors i can still like step into the arena and
1: be courageous and compete even if you know i don't feel like all that do you said in terms of any individual like do you react differently now than you did 10 years ago after you get blocked twice in a row you know, individually i feel like after my second block here i'd like i boost up i i used mm. to probably shut down now i'm like now i'm gonna show you why you shouldn't block me because statistically it's supposed to swing back in my favor right about now
0: yeah yeah, yeah. i would say my initial reaction is the same <laughs> it it hurt then and it hurts now but i like you said i'm sure i can detach it more and look at it analytically and be like more of a problem solver where it's like, oh, what am I getting the idea of like, you know, feed forward like, what am I going to do on this next play? How am I going to adjust? How can I solve this problem more than like, oh, I suck. I got blocked or whatever the, the thing is. So I think the initial reaction is the same because it's a feeling. It just happens. But I'm able to maybe detach a little more and think, what am I going to do? What adjustments am I going to make? And how do I solve this problem?
1: Are you, when you're going into things offensively, thinking that you should be planning a series of shot or swings to open up, or are you going into each offensive attack with like your blank mind of, I don't know what's going to happen happen I don't know offensively before I don't really care are you just reacting in that moment and seeing what you see strategically planning it out to because of what happened earlier and what you think they're trying to do
0: when I'm playing at my best it's more improv and you come in free and you trust what you see or your instincts um I'm not always there and so when I'm not I think it comes with a vision too like there's times where your vision's not there, whether you're under the ball, you're in a funk, whatever it is, you're passing bad. And I think at those times, I do have a, a list in my head, a ledger of like what I've gone to, what the other team has stopped, what they expect, And there are times where I try to stay ahead of them. At the same time, there are moments where I know I need to give a certain shot in order to earn the freedom back. So for me, a lot of people play to my high line a lot and I know that, and I'll have to throw in a couple sharper stuff to keep them honest. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. You force them, you know, I know. Yeah, I know how teams will play me for the most part. And so I do need to keep them honest by throwing in some stretch shots or things that are not as comfortable. But again, I think when you're playing your best you're coming in free and you're reacting to what you see. And if you have to hit a line shot, Three or four times in a row. That's that's awesome because that's that's what's open. Okay.
1: Yeah, I've but done, you i You know, I, I think I'm not Freer. Anything, Go ahead.
0: If I script anything, it's come in and hit high and hard to the corner because that's uh mm-hmm. you know I have that's like after I get stopped, that's a tough play to stop. And if I can establish that, then I think that opens up the rest of my game.
1: I think I used to try to come in open minded and I would get stuck. And this is what I'm training uh, our players to do right now is have your A swing for every every point. Like when you start this point, think about how you're going to terminate it, and then just have an off switch you know if they do this which is designed to stop that swing then what's your secondary you know and and then maybe your third is like you're in trouble so i'm trying to get players to be more systematic and not create in the moment and i think a lot of that is coming from studies of multiple decisions like uh, they did that the purchasing study and decision study when they put 27 jellies in a supermarket and they saw how fast people would buy or choose a jelly. They thought that more options would mean that they're more likely to buy, but in fact, they're way less likely to buy. They froze in their decision. They couldn't make it. And when they put two jellies, people bought faster and more often. and. did the same thing with fighter pilots uh, uh, in the u.s air force where they made binary decision trees instead of a completely open field and they found that they the errors decreased and so now when when i'm thinking about my offense and when i'm trying to help players decrease errors i try to not give them open mind i say let's try to establish your best swing or whatever you think the swing you need is right now and then just have a if they do this i'm doing this specifically to decrease errors and and i found at least you know, anecdotally and without taking hardcore stats uh, on my players that it's it's helping them decrease errors at at the very least. And do you think there's any weight on that?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think Anytime you can simplify something that leads to, you know, more consistency and stuff. I think it has to do with probably level of competence. Like I remember playing like a John Mesko and seeing, oh, he's got a really good cut shot and he can hit a high line. And if that's all you need to do and that keeps you really squared away, that's awesome. But, you know, eventually somebody might, you know, creep in on something like that. So uh, it's, it's, I mean, if you, if, if I'm struggling and I can keep it simple, that's great. If I'm saying if I'm playing at my best, that's when I feel like a little more free to do anything. But if I'm definitely in a hole, then it's, yeah, it's easier to worry about two problems than than five or six. And same thing on defense. Like if I'm playing my best defense, maybe I'm just free, but you know, it's rare that you're in that moment of you're like, everything's working. And so sometimes you got to simplify it and be like, Hey, I'm taking these two shots. So I think there's, there's definitely something to that. Yeah.
1: I like that idea. I see a lot of BA, A players who get so mad after every point they lose, you know, expecting that. This is just in that moment that they missed this dig. And then you'll see guys AVP and FIVB level not care at all. You know, when somebody gets three kills in a row, because they're thinking like "Mm -hmm -hmm, long-term strategy, ready to pick up that last one or the third one and also yeah taking away one or two swings and promi- promising yourself that you will take away at least that one and once you make that promise to yourself you lose that frustration that builds when they hit the other one you're like we're not covering that As so long as you've got that valid reasoning like strategically I think
0: yeah we're, we're giving them that shot that we did our job yeah
1: I think that's that's hard for a growing player to learn that it's you're kind of give up 17 points and it's going to be a very good win (laughs) Mm. well do you think what do you think for defenders other than just taking away a a promise zone for for a defender somebody who's or feeling undersized what do you think that that person's most important physical attribute is and what would their most important mental attribute be
0: some mental ones that come to mind would be patience i think Especially at the lower levels, we see a lot of people breaking early and getting antsy, you know, like I'm so I'm angled defense, but I'm so worried about the high line that I leave early or I'm, I'm imbalanced. And uh, so I think, you know, if you're playing against a good hitter with vision, you need to be a little more patient on defense and a little more settled. And then I would just say, Yeah, just just work ethic, just go for everything. I mean, the best the best defenders get Sandy and can you just train yourself to, to go after everything and that's gonna make you better. So mentally I'd I'd say that is like ferociousness where you're like you're scrambling as far as physically if you're if you're fast and explosive that helps <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i'd say low to the ground that good step the, the 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 drive off of that initial step is is always nice especially after you've been after like a good two and a half month preseason, when you mm-hmm. finally feel like the strength and speed in your legs that's nice it's nice yeah. to let your body just start taking over explosively. Well, what do you think was the hardest thing for you to learn as a player on defense?
0: I mean, still reading the game. You can, I feel like I was pretty good at positioning myself in the line of fire for hard driven hits, but more of the off speed stuff. I mean, just really reading the, I some stuff I maybe focus on the read would be, you know, where's the set in relation to the net? Where's the set in relation to the hitter? Because a lot of times that dictates what they can do. What's the speed of their approach? You know, are they gonna come in a bang or are they slowing down? Are they taking a look? and then really seeing that, the hand-to-ball motion to get a little bit of a glimpse on where the ball's going. It's a lot to look at. It's a lot to factor in, especially when uh, the ball is so shiny and we wanna really just focus on the ball. But there's you know there's a lot of tells that you can get, especially at the lower levels where players aren't as good of, of hiding it, of where the ball will go. And so again, I think early in my career, I was pretty good from indoor of like lining up with the, where their approach is going and their hard-driven swing and digging that. But more of the cuffs and off-speed stuff, being able to, you know, read that early enough to make a strong move to it is something that's very difficult. And there's a lot of people that are really fast. Like, I remember hearing Nick Lucena would go out to train with Todd Rogers back when he was starting, and they'd go to the track and do Todd's workout, and Nick would just crush him. Like, you know, he was way faster. But on the volleyball court, in the sand, for, like, the two-step burst, towards the ball you know todd was just as fast and i think it had a lot to do with you know just the two step burst or three steps but mostly was just reading and him seeing so many swings that he knew exactly what you, this look led to so again being fast is great but i think you're not doing a full sprint in volleyball it's usually just one or two steps to cover the
1: court and so if you can make the right move that's probably even more important than a, a fast move. You said that the distance from the net, if you could break that down for somebody who is like on your court, if you're coaching them. Sure. If the set is tighter or further off, what does that change for you as a defender?
0: Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so let's say a scenario where I'm, I'm blockers blocking line, I'm blocking angle. If the set gets
1: you're tight. You're defending angle, right?
0: Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm defending it We're not double blocking.
1: That would be sweet. Um, though.
0: <laughs> they, that opens up a sharper hit for them they can cut it sharper from a tight spot than they can from off the net. From off the net, they have to give it some height and some loop to kind of cross the net. And I would have more time to get to like, let's say a cut shot. So I might scoot in and play a little shallower, sharper if it gets tight. Another situation where my blocker is more read block or I see them lined up where they're like on the ball. Then when it gets tight, I think more my job becomes a poke over the block because hopefully they're gonna swallow anything that's tight and that's hit hard. And I would maybe play a little bit more behind the block for for a shot. So I guess those are two things that factor in. If, if somebody is hitting hard and they're off the net, it's gonna have to go a little deeper. They can't really bounce 10-foot line from an offset on the beach, um, unless they're Mark Burick, you know. With wind behind me yeah then i might stay a little <laughs> deeper if it gets tight and there's a big gap between my blocker and like the area they're hitting then i'll kind of get my helmet on and get in there
1: okay so so you're you're stepping back uh, instead of just like leaving your hands up if that sets off
0: sometimes i mean if you're a good overhand digger i'd say you know you can get in there most people shoot when they're off especially at the lower levels because again they don't have as much heat you know from off the net and they can't hit down on the ball. Um yeah, I, I'd say like if I looked at my stats and most players, they probably dig with their platform 80, 90% of the time. And so I'm just that's usually my first goal is to put myself in a position to dig there. And then the overhand's more of a reaction situation.
1: I've studied your defense for a while. You know, I look at you as one of the top defenders. And I want to see like, what's he doing? Why is, why is he getting better finishes and seeing that? And I've, I've looked at this a lot because there's a lot of high level defenders and you're one of them is on contact or before contact even though we're all kind of trained and told leave your hands free and in in front of you you know i see you i see sean rosenthal and a a few other very high level defenders who are holding their hands together between their legs before that hard driven dig contact so do you teach that a different way than you do you know that um have you had it and what do you think your theories on it are
0: yeah back to yeah, like most balls i dig are with my platform and so that's just how i get to faster i worked on doing the scoop defense where you have your hands apart for me i maybe get some touches there but not really controlled touches as much and so like if i can expect the ball is hit towards my platform i want my platform form nice uh, and together. I think you gotta look at your your goal as a defender, right? Your, your goal is not just to dig balls and your goal is not just to touch balls. Your goal is to like put balls away. And so if you're just touching a lot of things, that's great, but you need to be able to control the ball and get it up so that you can transition and put the ball away because you don't score a point with a dig. You score a point with you know, a trans ball. And so as often as I can get in a balanced position and get the ball up to my setter, that's kind of the most important thing. And usually that's with my platform together. The times where I have a one-arm stab, like look awesome, but you know, I think it's not a high percentage play.
1: I get the whole serve receive with your hands wide. And when people teach like, okay, one hand is at shoulder level and then you drag the other one to that. There are so many coaches that are still teaching that. And I know that like the Olympic coaches, gold medal squared coaches have gotten away from that completely. And the idea of building your platform kind of together in front of your body is now being taught by a lot of high level coaches, whereas that used to be like a complete uh, sin. And when I see even the world's best liberos and in indoor, I mean, before the ball even crosses the net, their hands are together in front of them. So there's this big disconnect I see, and, and I don't know if you agree, but I see between What so many coaches are still teaching with leave your hands out to the side and bring the other one to it so that you don't shank it off to the side. All of the world's best players are not doing that. They're leaving their hands, they're building them together, and then they're creating that angle with that. So what do you see and what do you think specifically on that? I always want to ask you about that and John too. I
0: think you have to train in reality. And a lot of times we don't know what we're doing. And, you know, we may think we're, let's say our hands are apart and meeting at the ball. But if you're watching a lot of film as a coach and every, it's predominantly people are locking their hands inside of their waist at some point, you know, it might not be straight on their midline, might be a little bit to their side, but then you're eventually you're swinging those arms like an elephant trunk. If you know that's happening, uh, you're really trying to fight your players from doing that. I think you're just slowing them down by trying to like, I don't know, by trying to fight that. So if you know it's happening, how can that then, the, For me, the goal becomes, how do I get them locked in faster so that that move is faster? And so if you start with your hands wide and then have to bring them together in your midline and then swing out, to me, that's a slower move than just already starting in your midline and then making that move you're eventually going to make anyways. And I think this happens a lot with, you know, sports where it's like there's this theory or something we think we do, And then maybe video or slow-mo kind of sheds a light on what actually happens. And it kind of changes some of that stuff. I know with baseball, there was some study about people were teaching swinging straight on the ball or forever coaches were teaching whatever it was, like swinging straight or down on the ball. And they looked at, eventually they had the technology to check the angle of a swing. And actually most people did swing up on the ball. And so for years, people were teaching basically the wrong thing. I think a lot of times, yeah, I think a lot of times what players naturally do is probably the right answer and there's gonna be different biomechanics for different people's body types and stuff and so i've become a little less strict and regimented on this is the one thing you should do to get to solve this problem and kind of embracing some of the individuality of players within reason but there's a lot of different ways to, to pass a volleyball and if i if i can pass the target off my left hip or off my middle or off my you know side like that just gives me more solutions to different problems that arise in the volleyball game so yeah i think there's one like the training in reality and observing what you really do because even you asking me stuff on defense maybe i don't know because it's what i feel but then if you actually look at video you can say hey what's the what's the reality of it right and i think that's a mm. a lot more concrete than just the the stuff that we you know feel we're doing
1: yeah and then there's that that confirmation by... When you, when you are watching video, a lot of people I think are trying to prove whatever theory they have correct, you know, so they're, they're looking for little inches that say like, see, that's what he's doing. He's doing it uh, the way that I think. Right.
0: Um, Oh, we've had, you can cherry pick which clips you use for your argument. Um, but also like two guys looking at the same clay might see something different, right? I remember hearing this about holding your platform after you pass and the people that were for it, see, look how long he holds it. Other people are like, look, he breaks it apart, like the same play. So yeah, there is a, it's kind of in the eye of the holder at some point.
1: Uh, you're proud of how long you, you've you stuck with it and that you you keep coming back. For players that are experiencing doubt in their career, did you, or do you manage that? You know, what do you want to keep going? And is there a point where you would tell anyone, just stop? You know, find something else.
0: I wouldn't tell them to stop if that's what they wanted to do. If it was destructive to them or their families or financially, like maybe there's a point where it's not the right thing. But if it's just a matter of taking losses, I think you can suffer a lot and still compete and do stuff. People that you know, we know that are in the qualifier that have a very low chance of winning matches in the main draw. That's they stay at it. Like, yeah, there's no reason that you should give up just if you enjoy it and you like to compete there's no way you should give up just because you're not going to like be at the top of the podium at the end of the day as far as advice I would look at it and I did look at it more of like a a macro picture of a career and like am I improving am I trending up in my ability and that's going to change day to day like like a stock market maybe it's volatile here and there because you have good moments and bad moments but as a whole am I putting in the work and is this trend going in the right direction and that's what I use to kind of motivate me to stick with it and then just Also, passion and gratitude, and just enjoying what you do. Like we can suffer a lot if 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 we enjoy it, (laughs) like. As much as we, you know, losses sting, I remember I had a, probably one of my worst losses and the lowest I felt was Ryan Doherty and I lost in a final in Hermosa in three. We had a little lead going to the freeze. I think it was like 14, 13 or 14, 12. And I was a freeze Ugh. taking a lot of the serves. Yeah, I was taking a lot of the serves and I got stopped a couple of times and hit a ball out and we lost that match. And, you know, we were this close to, to winning a title. And then afterwards, I remember just walking down the strand and like just being embarrassed and hurt and like i'm like why am i doing this is it worth it i like just feeling so low but with some detachment if i look at it macroly, like no that was our best tournament of the year we got a second we were like inches from winning i think the self-doubt and the emotions will always be there that's just natural but i guess it's more about like who your identity and who do you want to be what do you want to be about and how can i you know live those values out because the doubt doubt will always be there and
1: you guys still go to work you think that there are any players that don't doubt themselves yeah austin rester and casey it- patterson <laughs> Austin <Rester. laughs>
0: No, no, no. I mean, I think there were people that I looked at of like not to not to throw those guys out. Those guys were. I'm joking by that, but some players. You know, where you think it's easy to blame your partner or to think that, you know, that did not have doubt that you should be there. And just the world is everything's rigged or something, if it's not working your way. But I feel like the trap yeah. there is that maybe you don't put in the work because you think you're already good enough. And that because you're not winning like it's somebody else's fault or something's, you know, is not there. So confidence is great in the moment, but you know, sometimes some self doubt puts you to
1: work. Yeah. That's a good point. Do you have any things that you lean on that you do specifically when you're recovering from that loss or, or you're just not feeling like like you are trending up? You know, do you have an activity, somebody you lean on? Do you go to your family and just hang out? Do you go hiking? Uh, is there anything that you would give to somebody else that you say their mind or their activities should turn towards X when you feel like things are going crappy?
0: Yeah, I think there's, I mean, if it's really bad, I think a little bit of space is great. And if you have some family or people to rely on, that that's great, usually I don't wanna, you know, see my friends or something at that moment because I'm still kind of depressed. But um, yeah, I think just having a level of gratitude for what you do and what you get to do, like, hey, I'm healthy and I got to compete, use my body and, you know, be on a big stage. And with that comes a lot of risk and some of these losses are gonna hurt, but it's a, it's a pretty good honor to be able to do that. So I think some detachment just be kind of grateful for the job you get to do because a lot of people don't get that i remember after that loss i had somebody reach out to me and say like oh it's really hard like being on that big of a stage let's say in a final and on tv but and it's but like at the same point most people in their normal jobs don't get that opportunity um and so it is it is a cool honor um even though you know there's a lot of highs and lows with that for me like i guess the answer is after a certain amount of grieving period is always just to to watch video and and go back to analyze it, and what can I do better next time?
1: Mm. You know, like there's not a there's not a whole, whole lot of professions, and I'm not saying that it hurts less, but there's not a lot of professions where you get to fail so publicly. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of times, like if you you don't close a, a sale, or you know, you have a, a bad day at work because you screwed something up. You know, you, there's a, a bug in your in your website that you were building it's that's just as frustrating but you just don't have people watching and for some people the people watching makes it way worse but mm-hmm. i imagine that they would take defeats the same way privately you know uh, those bad beats happen off stage too when no one's watching it doesn't feel any better uh, there's just that little sense of whenever you, when everyone's watching can you be are you to put it on the line in front of them and for them and
0: mm-hmm. i
1: i think it's it is a blessing to be able watching you know that's cool and that might not be for everybody everybody's personality but i i, I think it's cool and and I, they're giving their time to to come watch what you can do and they should be entertained a little bit but you can't let just because people are seeing it you can't let that crush you they are not going to look at you as a bad person after that
0: <laughs> yeah i think people don't care as much as you do <laughs> like they're not like oh my gosh i can't believe Billy got a third in that tournament. How embarrassing! You know, like they they don't know. Like they don't,
1: they don't care as much as you think they do. Do you you have anybody who you think was supremely influential uh, to your development as you went up? Were there any coach really? Way or any relationships that you say this allowed me to get to the next level or definitely caused me to?
0: Yeah, I think the first one I think of is just my own personal life would be my dad, just because he paved the way for me to play volleyball. So he introduced me to the sport. He was my first partner. He started a whole club so I could play. We played together at the beach and I was, you know, a little kid playing with grownups. So, I mean, he was definitely the most influential. I think one trait that coaches I've gravitated to have had is just encouragement. And I think when you Especially somebody who's hard on themselves, anyways. When you have a coach that just believes in you and encourages you and thinks you can do it, I think it's, you know, I'll run through a wall for that person. And so I think just believing in your players. And if you're like a coach giving, especially in Beach, we don't make a lot. If I have a coach like, you know, whoever, if it's Corey Glade, who I'm staying with here, who was my coach for a while, or anybody that's like putting some of their time um, away from their work and their family to help you. Um, because they think you could do something special. I think that's awesome. And um, I've had a few of those along the way.
1: Watching from afar, I think you've had too many coaches, like full-time in your pro career. As, as far as I know, people who stuck for an entire season, do you think that you were okay with that? Was it a financial choice a do i have to find somebody who's going to show up at every point and then is this actually worth it in the end to try to... what's your thoughts on on coaches at the pro level yeah usually it's a financial choice you know we just don't make enough to
0: to pay a coach to be with us all the time i think it's a great investment mm-hmm. if you can, if you have resources like coach coaches are awesome they help a lot gravitated towards you know finding friends or people that can help and then you have to learn the game on your own a certain amount like right now i'm working with John Mayer, who I think is, you know, if I could pick anybody, it'd probably be him or Karch to help, to help me. Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, he's busy and he's full-time at LMU. And so we won't see him till, you know, midsummer. But so for me, it's a little bit more quality over quantity. I think a lot of people get a guy that's just a good arm and maybe that's what they need just to serve somebody to serve a lot of balls where I'll take a little bit more, uh, especially later in my career, a little more knowledge over just somebody to give me reps, but yeah, I think. I think if you don't have the ability to get a coach, I think one hack is to just train with teams that have a coach. That way you still get the benefit Hmm. of a good run practice, but also like you can eavesdrop a little bit,
1: maybe pick up some tips for free. (laughs) Nice move. I think the right structure is kind of maybe what you're saying, like maybe a lot more pros should just be to hit balls for two hours, one or two days, and then get that coach knowledge to like work on systems and knowledge and say like hey, hey give me that at the beginning of the week so that I can implement it over the week and then I'll be again at, at the next report especially you know when the paychecks aren't paying them or mm-hmm. i think i was discussing this, this maybe with uh, kim hildreth uh, or sarah skerbhorn Skirma, i said for the for the american volleyball to, i think the answer might be for avp's players almost to develop like above two or three teams and just have a steady practice round because i think we're so obsessed with changing who we play against or who we practice against every single practice instead of working on ourselves where it, when you're in college you practice with the same 14 guy every single practice and you still improve immensely in four years you know it's not because mm-hmm. you're randomly changing so do you think that more players should just stop swapping practice competition constantly or do you think that we're we're actually getting styles every day if
0: i was running it i would care less about the consistency of the players like having the same group as much as just having the top competition i could get you know and obviously if you are running like a usa national team and you have the top four teams or five teams like that's that is the top and that's consistent so that kind of works
1: for both but i think i
0: think if you had the yeah the top five players in the u.s competing against each other all the time then that would just make everybody better
1: but what if they should they be then staying and competing amongst themselves all the time or should they constantly having to change like do you think that players right now the way that uh, the rest of the avp who's not training as the usa one two and three and four teams do you think that the avp mm-hmm. players are doing it right by constantly seeing new competition and scheduling somebody new for their practices every day or do you think that they would be more successful if they found one coach to lead three teams every single practice
0: yeah i mean like truthfully i don't know the answer to that um Mm. i could see there being a need for some sort of freshness if it was playing the same guys over and over where you kind of know their traits but the positives would be like you'd have to you know change some of those tendencies right because if i play against you for a couple weeks straight i'm going to know your game better than most people and so that's going to force you to make some adjustments so i think there you know there is some positives positives there yeah i think uh any anytime we're on I think as a coach, I just want to avoid autopilot. And so anytime things seem like they're getting very relaxed and you're just on autopilot at a practice, that's kind of the thing to avoid. So if I'm, if I'm too comfortable playing against the same group over and over and I'm not having to think and problem solve, then I think you're not improving as fast. And so maybe, you know, that's a time to get in a new team where you're seeing different looks, they're defending you different, the, the guy's left-handed, like whatever the situation where you're Uh, having to rethink and not just be kind of cruising
1: i think that's a good point if you're just stomping one team and you you stomp them for the same reason every time because you know the secret to them it's like all right especially if they're not going to change and adapt if they keep going back to that tendency that you keep beating them on it's like now we're not improving we've we've reached our limit here other than reps and what my coach can tell me so competitively not in that not in that state of creation anymore yeah i think i, I think you mo-
0: like you want to replicate a tournament as much as possible right because that's what oh. we're competing in and in a tournament you play a variety of teams and so i think there's important to you know i think at the end of the day that's what you want to do is like practice to compete not just like practice to practice. And how can this resemble my competition as much as possible? Um, and so I would, you know, I think there's a lot of things we probably aren't doing right as far as like the amount of time we put into it because the tournament looks a lot different than most nine in the morning, two hour practices.
1: Yeah, that's probably a good point. Maybe, it's your, maybe there should be. Wow, that is an interesting point. Uh, I mean, if most, people had the time and the bandwidth to be able to go out to the beach two or three times you know get home leave get home leave uh, that would be more similar we
0: we train for like a match now in the morning under pretty pristine conditions and you know if you're playing in a final you're playing at
1: three in the afternoon and it's windy and you're a little tired that's a good point and but there's you know then you, you could also say that about the marathon runners like our marathon runners training themselves differently of course it's a different sport but they don't run their 26 until the day of the marathon you know and uh, interesting to to try to transfer that from ball sport to what's the physical side of it versus what is the actual application of skill and mindset and the environment that you need to win in Uh, that could be very interesting to look at but it's also tough (laughs) taking somebody off the beach and now you have to take like nine hours of their day in order to to have a practice that also doesn't work for a life
0: yeah there's i mean you gotta train in reality and and maybe not for your body depending on who you are and the way things are going now it's becoming more of a sprint than a marathon because you know there's small draws and you're playing you know maybe two three matches a day at most so you got i mean i think you at the end of the day you your practice has to resemble your competition
1: do you have do you have any things that you're currently focusing on for your game like, is it one skill dialing anything in or adding anything to your game that like this season or this preseason i've got to add this or i've got to shore up this i
0: think the answer for me is always serving tougher it's something i'm i'm always working on developing right this year i'm playing with jeremy casebear who's got a really good serve and so my role might be a little bit more of the strategy guys strategy guy where he serves free and tough and i kind of like place it a little more but i think you know serving tough is not just hitting hard it could be serving the space it could be serving flat serving you know good floaters just yeah, hitting good locations. So there's a lot of different ways to serve tough. I think that's that's one area I definitely do, is always in the forefront of my training. I'm also working on I guess probably transition attacking right now would probably be my number two. I'm sure my numbers go down in trans versus side out. So how can I get
1: better at that? Hmm. Is it working on a specific series of shots or locations when you're in transition? Is it just making sure you minimize errors? For me, I think it was sh- an and after this the season that I worked on my transition because i saw the stats on it finally i was like oh dear god (laughs) like my transition offense was miserable so i just said you know what i'm going to not try to make decisions i'm not going to try to score points i'm just going to dial into i have three spots for options when i am in transitions and neither of them are big like none of them are big aggressive swings and that provided an immediate boost to my hitting percentage, which has been historically like my, my biggest problem. Digs per game, great, but uh, hitting percentage is always where I'm low and I didn't realize how bad transition was. So when mm-hmm. you're thinking about transition offense, what's the mindset that that will help you improve those numbers?
0: Uh my two big focuses within that would be digging high to the middle of the court. So that just like puts us in a situation where I'm digging a settable ball, not just scramble ball and then for me is just seeing the set and taking a r- approach to the ball rather than you know zigzagging or just charging the net and having to make adjustments so it's you know staying off the net it's being patient and really straight line on my approach to the set rather than a predetermined spot because inside out you can de- you know at our level depend on a pretty good set and mm. you know off a, off a good pass and in trans it's a lot more chaos And so how can I um, protect my approach and keep getting to a really good spot with good timing? And so usually that's digging with height and then really seeing the set. Those are two things that
1: I focus on. Do you have any cues, like physical things or or verbal thing that you tell yourself in the moment that help you wait longer? Because I think what you're saying is, wait longer before you start your approach especially in transition because it's the same thing i try not to take my timing step i try not to move during the set in transition Mm -hmm. uh whereas i'm already rolling in motion when i'm in you know side out so is are there any cues that you give yourself or that you would give a player when they have a they've dug a, a high ball to the the back part of the court
0: yeah i've tried multiple things you can either you know wait be patient and you or you can start farther back there's a lot of different things you can try usually in serve receive i'm already taking my step before they the setters contacting the ball my first like say my fourth step my mm-hmm. if i do a four step approach my first step off of uh trans my key would be more after I, I see the set before i make that first step so as far as timing that would be a little bit of a change to give myself more time and that step is a almost like a skate where i'm like shifting across the top of the sand like or like if you think of like a an animal prowling i'm not like just sprinting in it's like this really like slow push off like you know i'm, I'm prowling in not like a commitment step i love I think that
1: if, if the pra- if the, a si- prowl step in transition yeah like
0: you're you're slowly prowling and then you like attack that gazelle or whatever the last two steps but if if the situation you're saying where i dig to the end line I want to like create a really big window for my setter. And so I'll either kick out wide or I'll stay off the net to give them a big window to set into versus charging the net and giving them this really tiny spot to set. That
1: is that is a key word that I'm going to to take to the camps and clinics and classes, the prowl step and make sure that you're taking your prowl step after the set contact. I think that's brilliant and that's actionable that's usable that's usable for people like at home and listening and instead of that big like kind of jog running step just sliding skating across the top of end nice <laughs> good job sounds like you've coached before <laughs> <laughs> now there are just a couple more questions that we have and i know we've been an hour uh if you got to go you let me know but Do you want to know if there are any tools, pieces of equipment, or things that you absolutely must or need to have at a tournament, on the road, at the gym, things that you always carry or you know that you need to have?
0: Yeah, other than the obvious, uh, water bottle, hat, and sunglasses, I would say the, the thing I always bring are bands. Every practice, every competition, every game, I warm up with a series of shoulders where I'll put the... These are the bands that I can attach to a pole or something, and then there's two different things that have straps that I hold. I'll go through a series of shoulder warm-ups uh, with the bands, and then I have two smaller bands that are like circles that I put around my ankles and my knees. Then I do hip warm-up stuff and steps and stuff like that. So those are the the those bands are the equipment that I bring with me everywhere I go, and I like warming up that way. I can you know on a hot tournament i could be in the shade doing it or i could be in the players tent doing it and feel very activated and warm before i you know step out and do maybe more jogging stuff
1: i like that and i also like it you know that little soft cue for people when you're at a tournament just because you're warming up doesn't mean you have to be out in the sun on the court right now you can be doing your body stuff saving some body heat saving some calories and some sweat by just doing it in the shade some people don't think about yeah especially
0: as a, a tournament goes on and you know you're playing your fifth match you don't have to maybe have the energy to warm up quite as much um, or as long so you gotta get a lot of bang for your buck
1: all right so billy now's now's the time where we we get to put a little spotlight on all of your extra endeavors you know <sighs> when you talk to you when you hang out when you see you play i don't think people appreciate how freaking funny you are <laughs> first of all uh, anytime just like your instagram profile uh, that i read today it said uh the world's best source for Billy Allen news, or the world's biggest source for Billy Allen news. It was like little There's lines like that, they crack me up. <laughs> but you're in extreme creative, I would say, in terms of directing, idea flow. I don't think the volleyball world has utilized you as much as it should, but you're now the author of five books. You've authored five different books. The Inner Night, most recently, which is about high performance uh, set in... Is it set in the form of a novel?
0: Yeah, so this is a, an interesting one to describe. It is a, it's a book for coaches and athletes, but it's basically a sports parable. So it's a fiction story of a night training for a tournament, but it's packed with lessons on effective practice, on mindfulness on you know all these things that i think are important and it's woven into a story that's fun to read it's it's short the idea is like a good summer read for your team
1: or yourself yeah
0: so that's what it is the internet train and compete like a champion
1: love it uh you also already have another book coach your brains out which is uh, all of your lessons from your podcast the coach your brains out podcast which you, you co-host with uh fully fuller, fuller mayor and niels is everybody mm. still Hosting and a part of it. I know you said that John Mayer was the one who's like really keeping yeah. it going.
0: Yeah, we're they're all still on the the uh, the ad at the beginning, but it's it's mostly me and John now. Uh, the book is John and I wrote together, and we'll get Andrew Fuller and Niels Nielsen on as guest stars here and there uh, when we're in
1: a pinch. <laughs> nice, nice, and kind of what I liked listening to way way back when. You know, I haven't listened in a while, I'll be honest. Um, but. I was addicted to it. I mean, I would consume your episodes because of the good conversations. And I think you guys were hundred percent an inspiration for me starting this like, okay, let's keep pulling information out so that players who are coming up, they have a source of great, volleyball information coaches especially from your podcast have great tools to help their players was starting that were you trying to create something for the volleyball world or was it just you guys hanging out as buddies
0: it was definitely this the latter it was a a selfish thing like we we enjoyed podcasts and we talked volleyball on our own i think we had just been to a conference called train the gap where like Karch and Tom Black and um, some other high-performing coach talked and we and Trevor Reagan, who who at the time was Train Ugly and now he does the Learner Lab. We were pretty fired up on just this idea of sharing ideas and you're we like, hey, let's do a podcast. And what do we know about? What can we know about volleyball? I mean, it was the three of us, Nils at the time, just sitting over my iPhone in John's garage talking. Over time, it was just, it was always focused on like the guests. So a lot of podcasts have really cool personalities. Like if you're Joe Rogan or whoever, like but it, us, it was like we're kind. Of, we kind of fade in the background, and so it's basically just ask a lot of questions, and that's a lot easier for us because we don't have to do much work. We just let let the the guest carry the show, and then and over time, it's just you know, it's definitely a, a resource. And I can say that not because we do a good job, but just because we've had a lot of good guests on there. But it, as it started out as something more for us and if anybody liked it and more than like, oh, we're going to do something great for the world of volleyball, but uh, which I think is also reflected in how much we market it. <laughs> I like, never tell anybody that we do a podcast, but uh, the people that find it think it's like, cool. Staple it
1: on your shorts or something. <laughs> yeah. The people
0: that find it think it's a cool little secret that they found out about.
1: Did Have you ever been able to like monetize it effectively or to the point where you're like, oh, this is a nice little boost? Um, cause I know there are tons of websites and like business coaches, and I'm trying to figure out if this podcast will ever be monetized in itself, aside from being you know part lead generation for camps and clinics. But have you ever been able to monetize it effectively, and what type of sponsors would be your dream sponsors for it?
0: So for the I, I found out in my own playing career that it's pointless for me to look for sponsors <laughs> because it, it's just not worth the effort for me. I'm on board. But uh, I think that for, we've done it for maybe like let's say seven years. I'd say for the first six years, we had one sponsor for like a month. So we just kind of never went that way. But lately we have been able to make some money from it. We have a Patreon where people donate. We have some really cool coaches out there that listen and like and contribute a couple bucks a month. And that helps us out. And that, you know, it adds up over time. And then we also recently, Gold Medal Squared became kind of our like flagship that they run our podcast so they do all the hosting stuff and they just started uh, kicking in a little bit too so we do little ads now for them because they're a good organization i
1: think they have good stuff they are a, a great organization the the, the way i tried to like, treat our coaches like when we're going to to camps and stuff and flying people how good gold medal squared treated us as coaches and how they would go out of their way to to make sure everything was right i could not have asked for a better summer job uh, than working with them. As as far as just as far as role models for people who own a business, and and how generous giving and and how they go out of their way to make their coaches happy and satisfied and keep them coming back. Big big fans of that company. Is John part owner yet, or is he just still their main like is he their main beach guy now?
0: Yeah, he's. I don't think he has much to do with Gold Medal Squared in general. He's part of the Gold Medal Squared Beach end, which hasn't really taken off i think they mm-hmm. were starting right around covid so they haven't done a lot with that he's done a few camps so a lot of room to grow with that i know they've they have some sort of videos that him and tom black have done and yeah it's, it's coming eventually
1: i mean it's no better at beach but it's, uh, it's- <laughs> i'm just waiting for them to ask for a little partnership that's all yeah. <laughs> just getting their ears <laughs> and just lastly uh, tell us what your uh your your two two-part series right now i There's another source of your comedy was your one novel that said uh, edition (laughs) 0.5. I I saw it on Amazon that you have a a book that edition 0.5 and I was just like, it just makes me chuckle. But tell me about the the good, the good blood series. Yeah.
0: So I have two coaching books and then I also have uh,
1: a fiction series. I have
0: one more book to kind of close out the series. It's called, the first one was good blood and then there was dark blood and the new one's going to be royal blood. It's, Nothing to do with volleyball, it's just a fantasy action adventure fiction that I've enjoyed writing. It doesn't sell as many copies because I don't have much of an audience outside of volleyball, but I think they're pretty good and they're fun. So if you're a reader, check them out.
1: Nice. And all of those links, if you guys are watching, anywhere right now on facebook on youtube live and if you're listening currently to the podcast version those all those links are in the show notes they'll take you right to his books and his website and his blog and the old kind of good videos (laughs) so you guys want to check them out just go ahead and swipe down into the comment description link section and you will find them there uh any parting words billy no
0: thanks for your time Um, i know you're you're killing it working really hard better at beach and I've appreciated watching your content and your videos are pretty funny too. It's a good, it's a good balance of of humor and and insight. So nice work. Thanks man. Appreciate it. All right. Well,
1: we'll see you on the sand. Have a great day. All right. See you Mark.